welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey, everybody. So this week, I'm joined by one of the UK's leading robotic surgeons, Mr. Prasanna Suryakumaran. He's known by his initials PS for short, and he is a world leader in robotic surgery and prostate cancer care. He's published over 150 papers in medical journals on his robotic surgical techniques and research studies, and is frequently invited all over the world to teach other surgeons and doctors on his innovations. So as well as his NHS consultant robotic surgeon appointment in London, PS also works for Santis Clinic London, which is the only private clinic in the UK in which all its surgeons were named among the best prostate cancer surgeons in the UK. PS was also named as London's most influential doctor in 2019 and is the UK's most followed urologist on Twitter. PS, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you so much for the invitation, James. I'm really excited. I, you know, this is only my second ever podcast, so I'm really, yeah, I'm a bit amazing, of a... amazing. So only one to beat for how good the experience was. Then yes. um, <laughs> we're on episode, I think, like number two hundred odd that we've recorded now. So um, yeah, we're pretty, we're pretty far in. So hopefully you enjoy it. Um, whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? So I'm calling you from London. I'm in a, I've finished operating this morning and I'm uh, in my clinic room waiting for my first patient. So I'm, yeah, I blocked Excellent. out an hour uh, to speak to you before that. Awesome. Were you using the robots this morning? I was, absolutely. Yeah, this, the end. once you operate with the robot, James, you don't go back. <laughs> oh, excellent. I can't wait to get into it. So, um, P.S., the way that we do this is we initially get you to tell your story and obviously you've got a, a super interesting background and making it to where you are now, the top of the surgical robotic tree in the world is a pretty cool place to be. So I'm sure plenty of people listening will want to know how you did it. So uh, by all means, for our listeners, why don't you tell us a bit of your story? Okay. Well, I was born in Sri Lanka, a small little uh, developing world country. My father came to the UK to do fellowship training. Uh, when he was in his early 30s and I was, you know, two or three years old, uh, four actually. Uh, and then with a view to go back to Sri Lanka, and then there was a civil war that broke out in Sri Lanka. So he got stranded here and we moved around every six months from, you know, hospital to hospital up and down the country. And I have lots of photos as a child wearing hospital property towels and wow. hospital property type scrubs and stuff because we lived in hospital accommodation. And then when it became apparent that we weren't, ever going to be able to go back to Sri Lanka um, because we're on the wrong side of that kind of racial divide uh, we we stayed my father stayed in the UK and then so we went to school so from secondary school onwards I've been fairly stable in, in sort of South London I went to medical school uh, and uh, then became a doctor and I, one of the things I like most of medical school was the kind of anatomy uh, and the um, you know learning the anatomy and the cutting up of the Back in those days, we used to actually have cadavers that we used to learn anatomy on. That's all changed now, but that's what we used to do. We used to I sneaked in just while they were still doing that. There you go. So that's all. Yeah, that's all changed now. But but yeah, so I used to do that, and I really enjoyed the surgical type stuff of it. Uh, and then, so after Nottingham, I moved down to London uh, to continue my surgical training. And then, quite incidentally, I got offered a, a position to do uh, a prostate cancer PhD. 
Um, because I was looking, I was always quite academically minded and wanting to, to learn about papers and reading a lot and trying to write papers and stuff. So, uh, but I didn't really know anything about prostate cancer specifically until I finished my kind of junior training as a, as a junior surgeon before I decided to become a urologist and they, they offered me a PhD. So I did that in prostate cancer and then I got on to the urology training program again in, in Surrey slash South London. Um, and then because I did pretty well on that, my program director, who was one of my mentors, um, made a couple of calls and got me into a fellowship program to learn robotic surgery with the one of the world's best robotic surgeons. And wow. rang up that world's best robotic surgeon and said, that's the guy that was uh, on the very first robotic surgery uh, ever done. Uh, and he rang him up and said, you know, I've known you for 25 years. And in 25 years, I've never recommended anybody for you to take. Uh, on fellowship and I'm recommending PS so that was a real in for me so because of that that guy then said well if somebody I've known for 25 years is only going to recommend one person it's going to be this guy I'd better take this guy so he quite kindly took me and uh, so I shipped my young family at the time uh, wife and a, and a newborn baby six weeks old to New York uh -huh. to the upper east side of Manhattan lived like a pauper for a year and a half because <laughs> the 40,000 US dollars on the upper side of my hand cover the rent for a one bedroom flat. Uh, so I lived off savings and loans, uh, but knew it'd be a fantastic opportunity to learn from the world's best and live in the, you know, in one of the most iconic cities Absolutely. in the world, central Manhattan. So, so we kind of lived it up for a year and a half, worked really hard, sort of, you know, started work at sort of 6.30 in the morning, finishing at sort of eight, nine o'clock in the evening. Uh, and then usually having the weekends free, which is when we would go and actually see some of the city. Um, and then, because I did well in that position, um, my wife got pregnant actually again with our second child and realized she wouldn't be able to cope with two very uh, little children under the age of two <laughs> without any support from me. So she wanted to go back to London. Uh, and so I got a job at the Karolinska uh, to finish my fellowship with the very first robotic surgeon in Europe. Uh, so having moved from the the US to, to Europe and the Karolinska, of course, is a very well-known center for robotic surgery and lots of medicine. So she moved with my two young children back to London. I moved to the Karolinska and alternate weekends. I took the Fridays off so I could have long weekends back at home with the family. We made the fellowship work that way. Uh, and then while I was there, I got a call from the Nuffield Department of Surgery, head of department from the University of Oxford. Uh, again, one of the most prestigious surgical academic appointments in Oxford and he rang me and said I've heard good things about you and we're looking for a robotic surgeon to, to kind of help us develop our robotic program in Oxford and uh, who's also an academic would you like to come and visit and so I went and visited and got wired by all the Oxford kind of you know spires and all the kind of good stuff they're doing there and realized there was potential so then I moved to Oxford as a consultant uh, academic surgeon there uh, so I was there for four years. During sort of the second, third year of that, my mother unfortunately got diagnosed with advanced ovarian cancer uh, and needed chemotherapy and major surgery. And so I wanted to move back to London to be closer to home. Uh, and so I started putting the feelers out. And then uh, the hospital I currently am in in London, NHS Hospital, um, which is the largest robotic prostatectomy, prostate cancer center in, in the country, uh, had an opening and they invited me to apply, uh, and so I did. And then I was able to move to London and, and then be closer to my parents, and physically closer to home. Um, so that's, that was that move, uh, and I've been in London since then.
and the good news is my mother is in remission and has is, is been, been doing well. Lovely. What a lovely way to end that story. It is a, an incredible journey, and I want to take you right back to getting recommended to the surgeon in New York City. A heck of a recommendation that never recommended anybody in the 25 years you've known that person, but they recommended you. I know that people that listen to this, you know, often get in touch because they want to know really practical, actionable advice. And I'm just wondering for people that want to get to the top of a tree, no matter what it is, whether it's surgical robotics, whether it's something to do with health tech, anything else, right? There's, there's something about loving it to be excellent. And there's something about really wanting it to be excellent in something. Why do you think you were recommended so highly? What would your advice be to somebody that was looking to get a similar recommendation of somebody? Yeah, so I think it's, always, it's all about having that passion, as you, as you kind of alluded to. Because if you have passion, then you will automatically work hard for something. You know, nobody needs to tell me to go and play with my children at home on a weekend. They don't need to say, oh, you have to spend eight hours on a Saturday and eight hours on a Sunday looking after your children. Because it's not a chore. It's a passion, right, to spend time with your children or your wife or your girlfriend or whatever it happens to be. Um, so if you have the same passion for what you do at work, then it's not, it, you don't count the hours. You're not punching a clock saying, I've come in at nine, I'm leaving at five, I'm paid to do 40 hours a week, I'm doing 40 hours a week. And so if you find something that you really love, and, and also you need that sense of, of you know, immediate satisfaction, right? As surgeons, we love immediate satisfaction. We love to be able to do an operation. It go well, the patient do well, the patient say, thank you. You cured their cancer, job done. You feel great. That's very different to you know, people that don't get that. So if you're one of those personalities and you know you're writing a paper, you're doing a piece of research and it gets published in a good journal and people pat you on the back, that you know, self-propagates your love for it. Uh, and so you find something you really like as an idea uh, and then you can work on it and you crystallize it. And for me, it's all about focus. So people say that variety is the spice of life, but actually I disagree in the sense that I think actually depth is the spice of life. So rather than doing lots of things superficially, which you can do in medicine to some extent, you can be a general urologist in my field, you can do a bit of this and a bit of that, or you can decide to really subspecialize and do one thing really well. Because I only really do one operation, um, which is you know robotic prostate cancer surgery. You know, I'm, I'm not doing you know, all of the other spectrums of urology. I'm not doing female urology. I'm not doing andrology. I'm not doing stones. I'm not doing lots of things. People say, oh, don't you get bored? All you're doing is the one thing. But because I do it so well, I've done it so many times, there's intricacies to it. And then you can start to work on those intricacies. People don't tell a professional golfer, oh, you're only playing one sport. Why don't you play golf and cricket and tennis and, and badminton and, and all these things? And, and, you know, most professional golfers would be decent cricketers. If you play. <laughs> not that difficult, right? Yeah. Not that different. But, but they don't try and do two things, you know, half well. They try and just do one thing really, really well. And when you become really, really good at something, whatever it is, that passion grows in you because you know you are among the best at it and therefore you become better and better at it. Uh, and so it becomes a kind of perpetuation uh, because it's all about hard work. It's all about going above and beyond. There are lots of reasons why, you know, you may not make it. For me, you know, you know, one simple barrier is that people said to me when I was younger, you know, you need to shorten your surname or your name because, you know, people can't pronounce it and, and therefore you won't get this, 
in a high profile job. And I always refused to do that. I gave them a workaround by giving them the ability to call me by my initials, but I never officially anglicized or changed my name in order to try and get, get further because that's actually not the way to do it. A much, much better way to do it is to show actually that you are, you know, going to work just that, that much harder than the, the other guy and you're going to be that much more interested and that much more passionate because it's something you really love uh, and then somebody will turn and go oh that guy with the long name that i can't pronounce that's the guy you should you should find out about that's the guy you, we should get um, and that's basically i think it's i think it's far more about um, this is an anesthetic phrase so you might can't come up uh, you might recognize it's far more about perspiration than inspiration right they say that anesthesia is 99% perspiration and 1% uh, uh, inspiration it's the same with life in general you know it's not about how talented you are naturally you know i'm not naturally that talented you know i spent i'm a, i'm a left-handed person and because the robotic surgeons by and large as most surgeons by and large are right-handed uh, and i knew that I wouldn't be able to do the operation left-handed because I wouldn't be allowed to switch the instruments. Before I went on fellowship for a year and a half, I ate with my right hand. I brushed my teeth with my right hand wow. for a whole year and a half because I was rubbish with my right hand. I couldn't, you know, before do up shoelaces right-handed, you know, I can, you know, I'm very, very left-handed. I play all my sport left-handed. And so I knew I was a very one-handed surgeon, uh, but I would need to change that. So for a year and a half, as soon as I got that fellowship, had a year and a half before I'd have to go to New York. I spent that whole year and a half brushing my teeth. Initially, I was like this, you know, but then, but then, you know, with practice, you can learn most things if you do it often enough. So I think so long as you have the right mindset that you are going to go above and beyond, you can achieve anything. I love that point about excellence, which is that excellence is from working on your strengths with focus. And I think so much of... You know, we, we give feedback a lot to people, don't we, about working on your weaknesses. And, and there, there, obviously there is value in that. But as you said, you can't do that across absolutely everything. And that true excellence is going to come from focusing on your strengths. And I think the first part of that is having the awareness of what you are good at, what you do like, where you should be focusing that time. And it seems that you certainly had that. And where did that come from? Where, why surgical robotics? Yeah, so I think, you know, it was, it was an interest in the disease, first of all, uh, okay. of cancer and prostate cancer. And my aunt had also uh, died of breast cancer. So I had, I had a cancer kind of, you know, yeah. personal experience. And, you know, my aunt was in Sri Lanka at the time, got very poor care because she was in a developing world country and came to, to London too late to live with us during her dying days, unfortunately, oh. I was hoping to get treatment. So I remember that as a child, having that huge um, influence. Of and that must give you a motivation, right? Yeah, so I was always interested in cancer, um, you know, from, a, from, that, from, from that perspective. And then, and then urology came about really because, you know, urology is one of those surgical specialties where you have quite a lot of kit. So it's not just about a knife and, you know, doing big, big operations. There's a lot of kind of hand-eye coordination to urology where you do things here and there's a screen there. So a bit like computer games. And there's a lot of medicine to it as well as surgery to it. Um, so I quite enjoyed that sort of technical aspect because I'm quite good with hand-eye coordination in the sense that I played, you know, a lot of cricket when I was younger. I played badminton to a fairly high level. So to me, it kind of fit 
to my kind of skill set. I wasn't particularly good at lots of things. Uh, and so, as you said, I, I thought that I'd much be much, much better off playing to my strengths than trying to bolster up my weaknesses and just being average. I just accept that that's not for me, not do it. This is something I could do well, and I'm interested to do that. Because at the end of the day, you only need one job. You don't need to be a fireman, a police officer, an ambulanceman, a writer, you know, an actor. You don't need to do all of those things. You just need one job. And it's much better to do that one job really well. So, so that was always my kind of, you know, uh, driving force in, in doing what I did. And, um, you know, why surgical robotics? It's just, it's just so much fun, James. You know, my mm. son will play Nintendo Switch and say, oh, do you want to play Mario Kart? I'm like, yeah, but it's so boring. It's so rubbish to play <laughs> playing with the robot. You're playing with something that costs, you know, 500 quid or whatever it is. And it's just a bit of two dimensional stuff. Well, here I get to play with a million and a half pound machine you know, all day long. And I get to save somebody's life at the end of it. I mean, that's so much cooler, right? Than, than, than PlayStation or... Or, or you've sold, you've sold me. So on the, on this podcast, I, I think we have missed the trick because I don't think we've done any robotics so far on this podcast. And I think, you know, as medical devices go, it's probably the coolest of all Absolutely. the medical devices and even my knowledge of surgical robotics is not that great you know as soon as you say it i just think of the da vinci machine and that was a yeah. few years ago and probably many years ago now and i've just got this image of this enormous piece of kit in a room and touching on a screen of which bits you want removed and, and this sort of stuff like these are the images that are conjured up for me but you tell me what is a surgical robot so as it, so it is like what you describe, it's like a, a monstrosity big thing, but it's actually now become much smaller, just as you know, everything in life has become smaller because we're now on the fourth generation of the Da Vinci. Wow. Um, well, Da Vinci was originally in, in sort of 1999, 2000, and I operated in New York with, the, with one of the guys that was the first guy on that. Wow. He, I operated on the very 10th machine ever, ever released. Uh, and now there are you know, many thousands of them, but, it, uh, but each generation has got smaller. So it's, it's a bit like having you know, the size of a human being, but with four different arms plus the camera arm. And basically that docks onto the patient. So just like keyhole surgery, where you've got ports going in, you now dock the robot on that. And then you've got a console that you put your head into, you sit at, um, like a flight simulator would be a good example. You sit at, you look down, you've got three-dimensional stereoscopic vision, much different to just a 2D thing. You don't have to wear glasses like when you watch Avatar or another three-dimensional movie. You can actually just see it in 3D by looking down. Into wow. The and then you've got these controllers by your fingers that as you move, the robot mimics that movement. But the robot reduces or removes your tremor so you can have a few coffees beforehand because you want <laughs> the robot. Uh, and it gives you times 10 magnification so you can see a lot better. And your hand can do this, but the robot hand can go round and round and round. So you can do this, and then you can do this again. The robot hand will keep going round. So you get much better dexterity as well as much better vision. And as you know, if you can see better and you can feel better, got better dexterity, you can do a better operation. Um, and so some things that you previously couldn't see because it was full of blood or there were bones in the way, suddenly you can get in and, and see much better and you can do a much more intricate operation. So the, the simplest way to put it, it is like a very advanced PlayStation. So the PlayStation just have a little joystick and you move in this way and the guy kicks or punches or flips over or whatever. But you are, <laughs> the guy's not doing that without you doing the movement, right? Yeah. So the robot is a master slave system. 
The robot is not autonomous. You don't press a button and then go off to the golf course. The robot only mimics what you do. So you have to have huge skills in order to control it. Just like having a, a fighter airplane. You know, the fighter airplane doesn't, doesn't fly itself, yeah? You need a decent fighter pilot to, to know how to fly it and not get shot down. So in the same way, it's exactly the same thing with this hugely intricate uh, and um, you know, advanced piece of kit. Um, but with anything that, that is that intricate and advanced, it takes a lot of skill and a lot of training, but therefore it takes a lot of enjoyment when you do it because you have learned to do something that's really difficult, right? And that's really intricate. And when you do it well, there's a huge satisfaction to it. Just like, you know, if you're doing something difficult, that's much, and you manage to do it, that's much more satisfying than if you're doing something easy. Absolutely. There's an interesting thing for me here. It's almost existential in a way that what, what it seems to be, it's augmenting and improving, as you've described, all of the human senses to make our ability to operate vision 10x better, movement, if you can assign a number to the ability to rotate yeah. your wrist multiple yeah. 360 yeah, degrees and freedom, all yeah. that sort of stuff, right? It's, it's interesting that as I say, we're sort of transcending beyond what the human body is capable of to then be able to do certain movements, certain operations, certain things that we as mortals are limited by. And that for me, when you extrapolate that, you might say, why doesn't a robot do every operation on one hand? And then on another what is the future of this? Where does this go? Where does this end? What ca- what are we going to do? And I suppose you're at the cutting edge, forgive the pun, of both of those things, right? I suppose in some way y- you must be asking those questions yourself and you're indeed part of the yeah, answer. Yeah, and, we are, and we are trying to expand. So robotics started with something like prostate cancer. It was actually developed initially, as you probably know, uh, with a collaboration between the Department of Defense in the US and Stanford University to help with battle field surgery for remote surgery uh, and then it started it, it was really uh, initially thought to be for cardiac surgery for heart surgery and then it realized or people realized that actually it'd be a really good indication for the pelvis because in the pelvis you've got bones in the way you can't see if you ever watched an open pelvic surgeon doing an operation it's like the most boring thing in the world because you can't see anything that's going on <laughs> all kind of hand goes in guzzles and then something comes out with full <laughs> of blood in the way so afterwards so you know you really don't have good vision and good dexterity because you've got bones in the way but here you can kind of creep into the pelvis and operate underneath all of those structures so so it, it found its niche in that and now it's expanding to other specialties so from urology commonest operation now done in the world robotically is hysterectomies, gynecology surgery. Then people are doing colorectal surgery with it. People are moving to abdominal surgery with it. They're doing esophagectomies with it. They're doing uh, basic tongue tumors, so ENT surgeries with it. So it's, it's uh, expanding more and more. And as that's expanding, as it's expanding more and more, new robotic manufacturers are coming online. So it's no longer just intuitive right. Vinci that monopoly is being broken and there are new uh, and exciting robots that are coming out. So Cambridge Medical Robotics is one uh, in industrial uh, player. That was, a, that was from Cambridge uh, University clinicians that then decided to set up their own company and they developed their own robot, which is again, very different to the intuitive robot. Here the arms are all modular. They can be moved independently of each other coming off from the floor. So you haven't got a big, uh, you know, a big 
footprint, which can't be moved from theater to theater. And you can now do much more simpler cases because it's much cheaper and much more versatile, which therefore again increases the range. But the biggest, I think the, the biggest scope for robotics is, to, is the emerging markets really, because you know, if you look at Manhattan, even when I was there in 2010, uh, which seems like a very long time ago in the robotic kind of journey, um, there were 17 uh, robotic devices in the island of Manhattan, which only has a population as you know of a million people. Uh, and at that time, there were not even 17 robotic devices in the whole of India, China, and Brazil, which of course has virtually half the world's population, um, or close to. So now, if you look at it, there's still huge centralization of robotics in the Western world with the US predominantly, but then the UK and continental Europe. But China is starting to get more robotics, India, Brazil, Interesting. Big, big, these big countries where there's huge room for growth because they've got billions of people. Uh, and so there might be, you know, 20 robots in India, but there's a billion and a half people. So why are there not 2000 robots? Why does the US have two and a half thousand robots for 4% of the world's population? You know, so there is huge scope to expand and, where, and, and therefore that's why new companies can come in because they can, you know, cut the cost, they can be, be more innovative. You know, when I was a child growing up, there was only one person you could get your phone from, it was British Telecom, right? And now, you know, and now it's totally different. You yeah. know, you've got plenty of providers and that competition means that there's progress. And that same thing is happening with surgical robotics, new players. I say Cambridge Medical Robotics, mm. uh, Johnson & Johnson, which Google was involved with in the initial stages to get better data integration into robotics so that surgeons get real-time feedback. A bit like what they're trying to do with driverless cars, have, have kind of you know, safety features so that if you try and do something as a surgeon that is deemed dangerous, the robot stops or times out or automates against it. So you start to get the safety features in, just like they're doing with driverless cars, just like airplanes already have, etc. So there is some automation coming in, but it will still be a master-slave system where the, 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 the skills- It has to rely on the actions of the human. Yeah, is, 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 is in charge. Really interesting point about the market and new players coming in, more competition in the market, people trying to beat other people, companies trying to beat other companies, therefore more innovation, smaller and smaller devices, better devices, things like automation coming in. Super interesting. One thing you mentioned before that I definitely want to ask you about, you mentioned remote surgery now. Obviously, with it being similar to a flight simulator, you know, you can get in, you can see the visual, the visual field of surgery, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Is there anything stopping you getting into one Da Vinci machine in London, which is actually then powering a Da Vinci machine in Brazil and you so operating on someone in Brazil the remotely? Stops you doing that, there are only two things that stop you doing that. One is the internet connection. Interesting. You need, you need to have a fast connection so there's no time delay. Yeah. What you don't want is to be moving your hand like this and then... Five seconds later, the robot yeah. is moving like this. So it needs to be seamless. And they've actually done that operation between New York and Strasbourg. Wow. And Strasbourg or somebody in somewhere in continental Europe, they did that wow. few years ago, just to prove the proof of principle that it can be done. So it can be done, but you need fast internet connections. And the NHS perhaps isn't geared up for, for that currently. So you need better tech from uh, tech people to try and sort that speed out. And yeah. then the other thing, of course, is the governance side of it with the medical legal responsibility. So if I operate on a patient in Brazil, for example, as you, your example, who takes ownership of that? Yeah. If something was to go wrong, 
what happens if the patient that needs to be seen? Should it be done by a local surgeon? Do I need to fly to Brazil if there's a problem, et cetera, et cetera. So those kind of medical legal governance things need a bit more work. But what is happening much more frequently is remote telementoring. So you then have a surgeon in Brazil who needs to learn to do the procedure and you've got the surgeon in London, for example, can teach. So he can see on the screen what the surgeon in Brazil is, is doing uh, and he can say, do this or do that. Or I, I would suggest you do this or draw on the screen mm. to then appear on the, the surgeon wow. console to then show him the way. So you can get remote telementoring, but the governance is still with the surgeon in Brazil. Of course. Um, in that sense. So, so as things develop, that I think will be the next step. And then hopefully one day I'll be able to to play 18 holes of golf and then do it on the night. <laughs> just do it in the clubhouse. Yeah, yeah just exactly. get one in the clubhouse. Oh, the clubhouse. Exactly. Ideal. That's Ideal. The, um, I want to just talk about the technology behind the, the, the robots for a second. And I'm interested in how dexterous it actually is. I've seen a video, a video comes to mind. I don't know whether it's Da Vinci or something else of, of a robot sort of removing the skin of a grape and yes. then actually, uh, stitching it back up again. Yes. Is that the Da Vinci? Is, that uh, is, uh, the da Vinci. is so that, it? That is a good demonstration uh, to a lay person of how skillful the robot can be. Because if I ask you now with your human hand to peel the skin off a grape without causing any divots in the grape or losing any of the juice of the grape and then putting the skin back and stitching the skin back, there's just no way it's going to happen. Whereas with the robot, because of the times 10 magnification, because of the increased dexterity and the increased precision and the filtering of your tremor of the human hand, you can do that. So peeling and peeling the onion by a different different layers of onion is another good example of that. And that's very similar to what we do with nerve sparing robotic prostatectomy for prostate cancer surgery, where the nerves lie in different uh, layers outside the prostate, like the layers of an onion. And now we can, rather than just being, we spare the nerves or we don't, we can now spare things incrementally and partially by going into different planes. So let's 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 just go into that a second because I think that's that's really really important because we can talk about tech for the sake of tech and yeah. dexterity for the sake of dexterity. And you know, it's very cool me talking about peeling a grape and and stuff with yeah. robot arms. That that's all well and good. But there's a reason that that was chosen, I imagine, as a video, as a as a grape and and you know, okay. prostates probably go a bit bigger than a grape in the ones that you see and, and things like that. But the point is what you just mentioned there of nerve sparing. Now, talk to me about that. Talk to me about how how the robot actually then improves the quality of of of, of a man's life based Absolutely. on that surgery. So that's the whole point. As you say, there's no point in having expensive tech unless it translates into better patient outcomes. So what you need is um, a device that improves patient outcomes. And we have done, I and many others around the world, have done many studies looking at surgical robotics and compared to open surgeons to show improved outcomes. And one of those advancements is in things like nerve sparing prostatectomy. Another would be things like repsis sparing prostatectomy, which helps with continence recovery. So the two main downsides for a man having robotic prostate cancer surgery, robotic prostatectomy, are impotence on the erections and incontinence on the urinary function. And so what we've done is develop techniques of nerve sparing where we can stain the nerves in different compartments and spare the nerves at different levels. So you can judge based on exactly where the cancer is on advanced imaging techniques like MRI, you can decide how close to spare the nerves. 
whether you want to spare all the nerves or part of the nerves, rather than it before it being a kind of all or nothing phenomenon. And even if you did nerve spraying, you weren't really sure because you couldn't really see. So here you can now see so much better and you can see the intricacies. It's a bit like me using a pair of scissors to cut your hair, one hair at a time, as opposed to taking a big uh, you know, razor and then not having that level of precision. Clearly I can give you a much better haircut if I spend some time with a very fine pair of scissors and decide to cut one hair at a time compared to if I have just a, you know, a pair of shears that people used to shave sheepskin with. So it's the same kind of philosophy. You get much better precision. That means better nerve sparing, it means better continent sparing things because continence recovery is dependent upon uh, the way you do the operation, whether you can leave the bladder attachments alone, whether you can um, leave the endopelvic uh, fascia alone, whether you can spare the membranous urethral lamp, whether you can spare the bladder neck, all various technical maneuvers that the robot allows you to do. Whereas previously it was about, let's just get this, you know, let's just get this cancer out and try and get the patient cured, but, but not worry too much about the side effects because we have no way of really controlling that. So what we're in the fortunate position now of um, is being able to effect cure for cancer or long-term control for cancer with these devices, but also preserving function and quality of life because we don't just want people to live, we want people to live well. We want people to not just survive, we want them to thrive. So, you know, you want to be able to offer solutions where don't impact on them, you know, in terms of all the other aspects of the things that make them have good lives. I think the nice thing about talking about this part is that so many of my guests have built technology for healthcare, which is all about improving efficiency. Because at the end of the day, that is a huge issue in healthcare is that there's just not enough to go around. And so any technology that can come in to speed up care, change the way we do outpatients to make, you know, throughput better or sort of stuff to do more surgeries and things like that. That's that's a huge problem that we need to solve. And there are innov- most innovations do that. This is an example, what you've just described there. Well, how long does, it, does an operation take you with the Da Vinci? So it varies based on how complex the case is, but typically between three and four hours. Right. And this is, and this, you know, this, in in order to, in order to do that nerve sparing element, what this innovation is doing is improving the quality of a surgery. And I think that is really important that there are still innovations going on that are extremely important to all of us because they improve the quality of care. And yes, the Da Vinci will improve efficiency too, because what you're saying is I can do that nerve sparing quicker, better, more accurate than I would be able to do with the human hand. So it is doing that. But as you've quite rightly pointed out, it removes that question of shall we just get the shearing device out and just rip this whole thing right out, pull all the nerves with it and just go, well, okay, there's going to be impotence, there's going to be incontinence, but at least we saved their life. Okay, great. But what we've said now is for that three or four hours, we can now do the nerve sparing. So it is doing both. But the main thing I would like to just to point out here is that it's not all about making things quicker and, and making oh, no. things more efficient. I think a huge benefit and you know the feel good factor here is that you've improved the lives of those men for for the for the rest of their lives and yeah, i think that's thing, such an important part yeah and one thing i was always taught by my um, mentor and trainer in the carolinska is that 
For you, you might do a thousand. I've done more than a thousand robotic prostatectomy surgeries now, and I'm 44. So by the time I retire, I've done, you know, many, many thousands probably. But, you know, for that patient, that operation you do for those three to four hours will dictate the rest of their lives. They will live with what you do for those three to four hours. So it's not good enough to just do an average job to just get the prostate cancer out. Patients deserve better. They deserve what my father deserves. They deserve what your father deserves. They deserve what we would do, want for our own loved ones, right? So we have an obligation as leaders in this field to constantly be looking for things that are better. Because at the moment, a man's quality of life after surgery, whether it's robotic, it's less, it's less of an impact, but there is still an impact. What we want is to be able to cure the cancer with no impact, right? And so that's a hugely, you know, high bar and we're not there yet robotics helps and innovations help and we are getting better and better and that that you know the the, the negative impact is getting less and less but until we until there's zero impact people like me have to keep working towards getting better results doing new innovative techniques with the robot developing new ways of doing it learning new operations whatever it is doing more research all these things that i'm involved with clinical trials etc such that we can make that impact less and less I'm not doing research sitting in a laboratory working on, you know, splicing of DNA. I'm doing clinical patient-oriented research that actually helps people, you know, directly. And that's why I'm motivated to do that, because I can keep doing the same operation I've been trained to do, and I will help those people. But by research, by dissemination, by innovation, I will not only help the people I am treating, I will help the people everybody else is treating, and potentially future generations of patients. So... This is why I feel so passionate about, you know, the research and the clinical and the education all coming together, because at the end of the day, it's all about patient care and doing what's best for patients. And to go full circle, that exact passion that you mentioned is exactly what's leading to that excellence. And I think that passion, that focus, that excellence is exactly what's needed to push forward the innovation in, in, in your sector. Final question for me in the two minutes we've got left. Where would you like to see surgical robotics when you do retire? What do, or what do you think it will be like? I would like to see a situation where anybody that is eligible for a robotic operation gets a robotic operation. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, it depends on where you live, who you see, whether you, if you go private, how much money you have, or yeah. whether you're insured. It's all very, it's all very, you know, random right postcode lottery yeah, yeah and the other lotteries <laughs> it's not consistent it's not consistent even in the uk it's certainly not consistent across the world i would like to see a situation where everybody that can be operated on by a robot gets operated on a robot i would also like to see a situation where people are well trained because it's not necessarily the case that you can just give them a robot and they can just do it and yes a lot of people can do it, but then they just do an average job with the robot right um, we can, you know, you've been in, you've been a doctor, and we all like to think that every doctor is brilliant, but actually, half of them are below average by definition. I used to say that so, all the time. Yeah. So true. So, so you know, but the point is not, you know, we have to get those people to be better, right? And so the average then keeps keep, keeps on getting better. And so we have to do the same thing with robotic surgery. We need to not only get robots out there so that everybody can can have access to it. Uh, but we also have to train people appropriately. You know, I often use the analogy of Tiger Woods and, and, and playing golf, maybe slightly outdated now, but you can give Tiger Woods a, a wooden club and he will still beat me at golf, even if you give me the best clubs in the world, right? And you can give, um, you know, me 
a relatively you know inefficient robot and i'll probably still operate better than giving somebody that doesn't know how to use it the, the state-of-the-art robot what you really want is to give the best kit and train the people the best way such that you give tiger woods the state-of-the-art golf clubs and he can win 15 major championships right that's what you want you don't want to give you know just the the great kit without the, the great training or the great training without the great kit you need the two aligned so you need Plenty of robotic devices, such that everybody who's eligible for an operation gets one. And you need to make sure the surgeons are all really well trained. P.S. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a heck of a lot about where surgical robotics is and, and your vision for the future of it. If people want to get in touch with you to learn more about what you do, what your clinic does, uh, or they yeah. just want to learn more about robotics, what's what's the best way for them to get yeah. in touch with I mean, either you they or, can, or... They, can, they can follow me on Twitter. That's an easy way. I'm at PSUROL, so my initials PS, and then UROL, U-R-O-L. They can look me up on LinkedIn and connect with me on that. But by Twitter, they can DM, direct message me if they, if they do that. Um, they can email me, which is PSURI, so... P, my first initial and the five letters of my surname, S-O-O-R-I, at santashealth.org. Uh, I'm really, you know, a, a, a big fan of social media and of interacting with patient groups through Facebook and, and these things, because to me, you know, it's not just about me working in a silo, as I said, and treating people one at a time. I'm trying to treat lots of people beyond the ones I'm treating directly to, to disseminate the technology. That's what it's, that's what it's all about, right? Completely agree. Absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the invitation, James. I really appreciate it. I had a great time. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.